The police arrived at a suburban home near Cape Town in the early hours of a Sunday morning, a little before Christmas in 2014. They thought they'd stumbled on a drug den or some kind of a sex ring. Instead, they found an odd sort of traditional healer who looked more like a suburban grandmother than a drug kingpin, and she was minding over a group of psychedelic night trippers. This launched an upcoming bid in the South African courts to have hallucinogenic mushrooms taken off a list of illicit drugs that ranks them alongside heroin, mandrax and crystal meth. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. You can catch up on previous episodes directly from the website, psychonauts.co.za, or subscribe on iTunes. My name is Leonie Joubert, and this is Episode 2, The Drug Den. The first time the police come for Monica Cromhurt, it's about two on a Sunday morning, just before Christmas in 2014. They think they're raiding a drug den, or that they might be about to take down some kind of a brothel, madam. I can hear Monica laughing over the phone as she tells me the story nearly three years later. It's not that she thinks it's a joking matter, mind you. It's just, well, the thought of her being taken for a hardened meth dealer... (laughs) Maybe you have to see Monica to understand why it sounds so ludicrous. You couldn't get a more ordinary-looking, middle-class, grandmotherly type if you tried. Monica's 72 years old. She's short. She's quick to smile. She's plump in a way a matriarch should be. She's got just a few threads of silver in her hair, in spite of her years. And the style is cut so that it's a little too short to be a bob, but not quite short enough to be tomboyish. The first time I meet Monica is about 12 years ago. The world of wordsmiths in Cape Town is pretty big and diverse, and our orbits overlap briefly through a freelance writing cooperative that takes care of the interests of pens for hire like ourselves. At the time, she's making a living as an astrologer, writing up people's charts. I'm starting out as a science writer, And from where I stand, I don't have a god and I don't have a star sign. So you can imagine, we don't have a whole lot in common. Over a decade later, though, when I hear this woman has been arrested for possession and dealing, I nearly drop an eardrum in surprise. Of course, I give her a call because I'm convinced there's got to be a great story here, right? She remembers me vaguely and she's quite happy to dish up the dirt. And sure, there might be a hint of humour in her voice. But she knows this is serious business as far as the law is concerned. We're talking business of a criminal nature. But she's absolutely convinced about the cause she's fighting for. And she's willing even to go to jail for it. Okay, so back to the story about how the cops came to be knocking at her door in the dead of that morning. She tells me they have no idea what they're in for. All they know is that a man in his late 70s comes into the Somerset West police station sometime after midnight. 
He's confused and fearful, and he needs help getting home. He says something about a gathering in a nearby house. It involves a substance that he calls magic mushrooms, and there's a whole lot of people sleeping over. The cops on duty that night say they've never heard of hallucinogenic mushrooms. They have no idea what this chap is talking about. So they phone a senior officer, and that's when the alarm bells go off. The place they're about to raid, they've not been told, might as well be a meth house. When the police finally arrive at her door, they're aggressive, and she understands why. They're expecting trouble, of course. But the person who opens the door when they knock is, well, this 72-year-old. There's no drug den, there's no sex ring, everyone's fully clothed. Monica chuckles again when she remembers all of this. What they find when they arrive is a bunch of people scattered about Monica's home. Some are sitting around a fire out in the garden, deep in conversation. Others are in the kitchen having a snack. Some are sleeping on mattresses in the house. Others are outside in tents. They're all sober, according to Monica. And also on the tail end of the kind of ceremonial mushroom journey that we spoke about in episode one. The man who bought the police, it later transpires, was part of this group. But the intensity of his experience overwhelmed him and he took flight. He slipped past the minders who were watching over everyone and disappeared off into the night. He became disoriented as he wandered about the streets. Eventually a stranger found him and helped him to the police station. He just wanted to get home. But in the process, part of the story came tumbling out. Of course, now the police have called their superior, and they know that they're dealing with an illicit substance, and so they search Monica's home. They allegedly find about two kilograms of dried magic mushrooms, labelled and in a freezer. Two kilograms is a bit more than you're likely to have lying around the house for personal use, they reckon. So they arrest her, they pop her in the police van, and they slip her off to the station for processing. The charges are serious. Possession and dealing in an illegal substance that could come with a minimum 15-year jail term. But what do you do if you believe you haven't done anything wrong? If you're charged criminally, but you don't believe that what you've done is actually criminal? Well, the only thing a citizen can do in this case... You rewrite the law. Monica admits to me she was pretty straight-laced for most of her life. Now, when she talks about her relationship with mushrooms, it's like she's talking about a person... Someone she knows, someone she speaks with, someone she really trusts. They met on her 64th birthday, introduced to each other by a psychologist friend whose gift to Monica that night was a little banky of dried psilocybin mushrooms. At the time, she was just pulling out of the kind of depression that usually comes with a great loss. Her husband had died of cancer in 2005 and she was wading listlessly through the grief. For two years, she waited for her own death. She lost interest in everything, choosing rather to withdraw from the world. She wasn't suicidal or anything, but in her own words, she says she was ready to let go of life, yearning for the end, in fact. But the turning point was an ayahuasca ceremony up in the mountains near her home outside Cape Town. 
Ayahuasca is a hallucinogenic brew made from plants that are indigenous to the Peruvian Andes. It's also used for sacred journeys, the way these mushrooms are. Her ayahuasca chapter, well, that's probably another story. But it changed her attitude to being alive and being on the planet. And then, the gift of shrooms at her 64th birthday. A few nights later, she goes out into the garden and she takes her mushrooms all on her own. In the early hours of the morning, she has a profound conviction. It's like a voice saying to her that her home will become a school for mushrooms. The conviction remains with her. And then everything just seems to fall into place. The right people come along. Her insights about the fungus grow. She starts hosting gatherings at her home. And they become more regular. She doesn't advertise. She doesn't try and recruit people. Word just spreads and the people keep coming. It was a calling, she says, a conviction. It was unplanned with no goal in sight. It just grew and grew and grew. Until, five years later, the police come knocking. This is another turning point, she says, which spins her into an entirely different orbit. The most unlikely drug policy activist you're likely to encounter on this side of a psychedelic threshold. It's been an impossibly steep learning curve, she says, relating to the law, the constitution, legal structures. But now she's at the very front line of it all. After her arrest, Monica hires the 25-year-old attorney Johann Bester from a local law firm. He tells me that the best remedy for her as a citizen in a case like this is to try and actually change the law. And she can only do that by getting the court to declare that the law, which criminalises a substance that she claims has therapeutic and spiritual benefits for people, is unconstitutional. The legal process is deeply technical, but I'll try and keep it simple. Firstly, they have to get the magistrate's court to put the criminal process against her on hold until she can contest the law. This means asking the court for a stay of prosecution. Her legal team put in their application shortly after the arrest, and they heard in February 2016 that the stay had been granted. They also heard that it was uncontested. That means that none of the three respondents in the case opposed the application. So that includes the local magistrate, the National Minister of Justice, and the prosecuting authority. The attorney, Johan, tells me this is significant because it shows that they know they're not dealing with a dangerous type. The next step is to build a case for the Western Cape High Court where they will put a body of evidence forward that will aim to show that the Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act is wrong about hallucinogenic mushrooms and that these mushrooms don't belong in a rogues gallery of substances that lists them as undesirable and dependence producing. They'll argue that the substance has powerful therapeutic and spiritual benefits and that to deny South Africans access to the substance is unconstitutional. The aim is to then have the Medicines Control Council delist psilocybin mushrooms as a Schedule 7 substance. This is the equivalent of a Schedule 1 substance in the UN 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, 
which categorises them as dangerous, addictive and of no medical value. Johan hopes to bring the matter to the High Court in early 2018, where he will ask if the state is justified in prohibiting mushrooms as it does, and is this prohibition rational. When I speak with Johan now, he says that they're pretty much court-ready. They've got a stack of scientific evidence from reputable medical schools, like those at the Johns Hopkins University in the US and the Imperial College London. The evidence shows that psilocybin, the hallucinogenic compound found in mushrooms, is effective when used alongside traditional therapeutic methods to treat mood disorders like depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, and also effective for treating certain kinds of addictions like alcoholism and nicotine dependence. They've got Professor David Nutt. Okay, don't laugh, but Nutt is his real name. He's a leading psychiatrist and a neuropsychopharmacologist, I almost always get that wrong, who's going to fly in from the UK and take the stand so that he can testify to this growing body of scientific evidence. The second tier of Johan's legal argument will be the constitutional one. On the basis of the scientific evidence that psilocybin mushrooms aren't unduly harmful or addictive, and that they have proven therapeutic benefits, The criminalisation of psilocybin mushrooms therefore violates our rights as South Africans in a number of ways. He'll argue that the law results in mushroom users getting unfairly stigmatised, or, worse, if arrested, they end up criminalised. This, he says, interferes with people's right to dignity and punishes them for a victimless offence. The law as it stands undermines our right to freedom and security of person, Johan will argue that the state has no place regulating what a person does in the privacy of their own home, if that activity doesn't impact on anyone else. He'll also argue that the law undermines our freedom of association, since people can't come together for these journeys and pursue what for some is a spiritual practice. And given the mounting evidence about psilocybin's therapeutic potential, he'll then argue that the law interferes with our right to access healthcare services, It criminalises a substance that should in fact be available to us as a medicine. And lastly, he'll try and show the court that the law, as it stands, undermines our right to equality because it discriminates against people who use the substance for spiritual growth. If the High Court bid is successful, and both the Drugs Act and the Medicines Control Council are ordered by the courts to loosen up the laws around hallucinogenic mushrooms, either to decriminalise or outright legalise, then the next step will be for the Constitutional Court to confirm the decision. If that happens, then Parliament will have to instruct lawmakers to create regulations that will allow these mushrooms to be grown, distributed, sold and used here safely. Just like with alcohol, where you can't drive over a certain limit and where there are restrictions on who can sell it and where you can buy it, there will need to be reasonable parameters for the trade and use of hallucinogenic mushrooms. We'll need to have a framework in place for how these mushrooms can be used safely. But as Johan explains, putting that framework together takes time. Although, it turns out it's a little bit more complicated than just tweaking South Africa's drug laws. Sean Shelley is a researcher from the University of Pretoria's Department of Family Medicine, And he's a recognised drug policy activist who wants most drugs legalised in the interest of making life safer for everyone. 
South Africa is a signatory of the UN 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances. This convention set up an international standard nearly five decades ago that pretty much bans psychedelics universally. But as Sean explains, and this is confirmed by acres of evidence, the Nixon government used the moral panic surrounding the hippie generation to drive his own ideological agenda and had these substances banned through the machinery of the UN. There was no scientific evidence to support the claims that these substances are dangerous and addictive. But South Africa ratified the UN Convention, and in doing so, we agreed to create domestic policy that upholds the provisions of that convention. So even if the laws in South Africa change now regarding psilocybin, we are still answerable to our global neighbours. When Switzerland decriminalized cannabis in the early 2000s and also made it legal to provide safe injection rooms to heroin addicts, the country was regarded as a pirate state because it flew in the face of UN drug conventions. But they got away with it because their president was bold enough to stand up to the UN. Sean tells me that South Africa will need strong political will to contest what many in the field of psychedelic psychiatry regard as the UN's outdated, morally loaded and unscientific position on psychedelics. We'd have to tell the UN that we will only comply with the drug convention insofar as it's compatible with our constitution. We'd need some slick international diplomacy and the buy-in of the Minister of International Relations. Somehow, I don't see that hallucinogenic mushrooms are going to be high on that agenda. The good news, though, for Monica and for other journey guides like her is that should the Cape High Court rule in their favour in 2018, it'll buy them time. In the limbo period between the court ruling and the wording of the law and the associated regulations being officially gazetted, the state can't prosecute anyone in terms of the legislation that has now been found to be unconstitutional. And so it'll be game on for mushroom ceremonies. The police come for Monica Cromhout a second time. It's also in the early hours of a weekend morning, and it's while she's taking another group of trippers through a deep psychedelic experience. But this time, the cops are more gentle and respectful. Some of them are even genuinely interested in what's going on at the ceremony. Monica and I are on the phone again, and she's telling me the details of the second arrest. After that stay of prosecution was granted, She went back home to do what she sees is her calling, hosting these sacred mushroom journeys. This time, it's the crime prevention team that shows up at the door. It's in April this year, and they're more skilled, they're better briefed, and they're higher ranking than the duty cops that showed up for the first arrest three years earlier. They've received a complaint, they tell Monica. She doesn't want to implicate anyone, but she thinks she knows what may have happened. She remembers a troubled soul at a ceremony a few days earlier. From her description, it sounds as though he was showing the typical rage of an acute post-traumatic stress response. He'd stormed away from her home after the ceremony, and his anger might account for the six pages of complaint that the police showed up with. 
But they're respectful and considerate, she says. They leave everyone to carry on with the ceremony that's underway when they arrive, and they give her time to pack an overnight bag. A change of clothing, some toiletries, a pillow, blankets. While the police are reading her her rights, one of the senior officers asks her why she keeps doing these ceremonies since she knows they're illegal. Remember Martin Luther King, she responds. He was a good guy, right? Well, he said that if we have an unjust law, we have a responsibility to disobey that unjust law. A few days after this particular phone conversation, Monica emails me with the full quote because she says it's much stronger than her original quick summary over the phone. What she sends through is an excerpt from Martin Luther King's famous Letter from a Birmingham Jail, in which she writes the following. An individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust, and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. The day before she's due to appear in the magistrate's court on the 5th of June this year, to answer the second round of charges of possession and dealing, I managed to track her down on her mobile. She sounds pretty sanguine about the whole thing, but she's well aware of the fact that the next day, a worst-case scenario could see her going straight from the magistrate's court to Cape Town's big lock-up, Polesmore Maximum Security Prison, about 60 kilometres away. But it doesn't happen. The next day, I follow the proceedings through her social media updates. A picture or two pop up of her and Johan and a group of supporters parked on a bench in a hallway of the courtroom building. It seems there's a lot of hanging about, plenty of boredom, but a fair amount of good cheer. And then, a status update. By some stroke of good fortune, her docket has gone missing. Her name isn't on the court roll. This leaves the whole matter pending. I ring up her attorney, Johan, a few days later to ask what this means. He says either the docket will turn up and the court will reissue the summons, or, if it doesn't, the case will simply go away. So here we are two months later, and a whole lot of things have happened since then. This very week, cannabis is in the courts. The Pretoria High Court is being asked to consider the constitutionality of the laws which make cannabis illegal in South Africa. Last year, the Western Cape High Court already ruled that the current laws around cannabis undermine our constitutional right to privacy. The argument in that court case was that using pot is largely a victimless crime, and so that what South Africans do in the privacy of their own homes is none of the state's business, if it doesn't impact on anyone else. The High Court agreed with this argument, essentially making it legal for South Africans to use marijuana at home although the state's now appealing that ruling. The other thing is the public conversation about the failure of the so-called war on drugs. It's getting louder and much more vociferous. The old zeitgeist that demonises so many recreational drugs is becoming frayed and looks very worn at the knees. This August, the South African Drug Policy Week took place in Cape Town, with a strong call for a rethink on the criminalisation of so many of these substances, and for an open, rational, evidence-based debate about this war on drugs and how it seems to lead to more harm than good. 
we'll visit this can of worms in a later episode. For now, Monica's back home. Unwittingly, she's been thrown into the world of drug policy activism, and now she's taking her cause public. To fight for the rights of South Africans to have access to hallucinogenic mushrooms for recreational, therapeutic and ceremonial use. In the meantime, she tells me she's got some educational talks lined up at a few of the big jewels on the local trans party scene. She's co-authoring a book about her personal late-in-life mushroom awakening. She's gathering in survey material from people who've done her ceremonies so that she can show the court next year how many people have benefited from the experience. So far, more than 130 people have agreed to testify in the court case. She's also working with others in the community to prepare for what she says are their future responsibilities, should mushrooms be legalised. The first time Monica and I meet in person, it's at one of those freelance writers' meetings in the early 2000s, and we don't pay much attention to one another. I'm a greenhorn, still hoping to publish my first book. I don't know it, but she's about to lose her husband, and much of her optimism. The last time we're in the same room together, though, is just this month, at the South African Drug Policy Week, organised in Cape Town by some heavyweight researchers and activists. Between speaker sessions, she's either locked in conversation on her phone or hurrying to the lift to her next engagement. At this time in her life, after a spell of thinking it was all over, she's burning rubber trying to keep up with the pace she set for herself. During one of our more recent telephone conversations, she gives me a bit of a glimpse into this unlikely calling. I'm 72, she tells me during our discussion. If these laws around sacred mushrooms change, I won't be the one to benefit, but others will, and that makes my life feel meaningful. A quick footnote. Podcasting is a whole new world for me, but I haven't had as much fun in years, so I want to thank you for joining me on this journey. It's been wonderful hearing from you. If you missed the introduction message, which explains this rather brash move into the world of amateur broadcasting, or if you missed any previous episodes, please visit the website, psychonauts.co.za. You can also drop me a line through the website. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. And once again, here's the disclaimer. The author, that's me, Leonie Jubeir, and my partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction. Word is spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics, but because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up the conversation so that we can put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with the unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of such substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment, and people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should stay well clear. Speak with an informed family doctor or a psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for mushrooms. 
No matter how good you think you are at mushroom identification, it's really hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. And as the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once. Special thanks to the many people who shared their time, stories and expertise with me so that this podcast could happen. I'm listing all of you on the website. Thank you. Please visit psychonauts.co.za to learn more or drop me a line with your thoughts.